This morning we covered all of the background material and contextual work for this chapter. And hopefully this is at least fixed in your mind. Number one, this, this chapter in the scheme of the book of the Revelation is preparatory. And also, I, I hope that the main point that you got was verses 2 through 4 are meant to comfort us as well as all of the saints of God as we consider the great judgments that are coming upon the wicked in this world. And so we're ready, I think now, to consider these things a little closer and uh, even in looking over my notes this afternoon, I, I've chosen to abridge even more uh, whatever details we might need moving forward from verse 1 and verses 5 through 8. I'll try to uh, include next Lord's Day. Uh, for this evening, we're just going to jump straight to verses 2 through 4. And uh, I'll read them and then open with a word of prayer as I prepared this evening. One thought kept coming to my mind. Um, what mortal would dare speak of God uh, except to merely try to open up His own words? And even then we, we struggle to explain our God. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great, and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we need your help in understanding your Word and really my desire for our time is that we would just be enthralled with you, O Lord. That we would leave here under the impression that we serve a mighty God, a big God, a powerful God. Lord, I pray that we would live in light of this truth. That in studying who you are, you would increase in us your fear. That we would tremble when we consider your majesty. It's in the name of Jesus, your Son, that we pray. Amen. We begin first by noticing 
Well, I'll break it up into two points. The identity of the singers and then the substance of the song. As I alluded to this morning, these things are preparatory. We're going to, in chapter 16, begin to see the judgments of God poured out upon the wicked and nestled within that description of the completion of God's judgments. We have this musical interlude. And so we're going to look at, number one, the identity of the singers and then secondly, the substance of their song. So first, the identity of the singers in verse 2. After seeing the seven angels with the seven plagues in verse 1, as we saw this morning, John immediately sees someone else. Now the passage here doesn't explicitly name them, but it does use language that we've already seen in the book of the Revelation to let us know who this is. We're given their location, and then we're given a description. So first, we see their location. He says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then later, he saw them standing beside the sea of glass. And so we see here what appears to be a sea of glass. This would take us back to chapter 4, verse 6 where John said, before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass, like crystal. Now notice in both of these passages, what appeared to be. Chapter 4, as it were a sea of glass. John is here trying to describe what is really the indescribable. But we can say that at the very least, these singers are in the presence of God. Think... Consider some other text is Exodus 24:10. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Again, as it were. He's trying to describe the indescribable. It looked kind of like pavement of sapphire stone, as clear as the sky. We see something else, something very similar in in Ezekiel's vision of God. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 22, Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal. So it's over their heads. And then verse 26, And above the expanse there was the likeness of a throne. So the throne would be above this expanse. This expanse is under the throne. There was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. You see that similar language. The likeness of an expanse shining like a crystal beneath the throne. Ezekiel is again trying to describe the indescribable. This sea of glass accompanies all of these various visions of the manifestation of the glory of God. The sea of glass is like the flooring of the divine manifestation and it is the foundation of God's throne. And so in these passages, this foundation appears to be a stone, but it's perfectly clear, crystal clear. Perfectly smooth, he says, what appeared to be a sea of glass. 
perfectly smooth, transparent pavement that appears like an ocean, a sea made of glass. Now think about the irony here. There's some, I believe there is some theological irony. A sea of glass. Now, you've never seen the sea like glass. That is the opposite of the sea. It's never glassy. And so the, the idea that it would be called a sea of glass, it's, it's odd unless there is a theological point being made in the Revelation. And we'll see this again in, in the end of the book when we, we're walking on streets of gold, transparent like glass. We would say gold is not transparent. The, the, how do you know it's gold? Well, you look at the, what's not transparent about it. You look at the color of it. Consider some other text. Psalm 89.9 God stills the raging seas. If you read that psalm, the, the imagery is clear. From God's perspective, the tumults of the nations are as a glassy sea to Him. The raging of the nations are as no raging at all to our God. A drop in a bucket does not have an effect upon the sovereign God. The dust of the scale is as nothing in His sight. The point of all the nations are as the dust of the scale. They don't affect the scale in the least. Dust doesn't tip the scale. God stills the raging sea. From His perspective, that which to us rages, from His perspective, is perfectly calm. Psalm 89.9. And then Psalm 89.14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice, the who and the what of divine rule and authority. He is righteous and He rules in justice because He is righteous. This is the foundation of the throne of God. Now, what kind of righteousness does, is God's righteousness? What kind of justice is God's justice? Well, it's absolute, undiluted righteousness, free of all sin. His justice is perfect justice, free of all partiality. The righteousness and justice of God are free of all impurity. This is how God rules. Free of all impurities. Now a stone free of all impurities would be clear, transparent. It's impurities in a ruby that make it red, in a sapphire that make it blue, in an emerald that make it green. You get rid of all the, the impurities, you don't have the distinctions. You have clear stone. This is a picture of a stone with all impurities removed. This glassy sea, this foundation of God's throne. The point is that the very bedrock of all of God's actions especially as He rules over the affairs of men as their king and their judge, is absolute, undiluted righteousness and perfect, inscrutable justice. That's the foundation of His throne. It's a manifestation of His glory. It's who He is as God. And here the fact that it's mingled with fire just reinforces the notion that we're about to see the judgments of God as He rules the nations. Now these people that John sees, it says, are standing beside that sea of glass. Or if you have on the sea, that's a better translation. They're actually on the sea of glass. They are in the very presence of God as He sits upon His throne of righteousness and justice. They have been assembled with Him on this throne 
pavement. They're not looking at God from afar. They're standing in near relation to God as He is enthroned in power, ruling over the raging nations as if there were no raging at all. When everything works exactly according to the eternal decree of God, as it always does, and when every detail is orchestrated and carried out by divine providence according to matchless wisdom, then raging is no raging. Tumult is no tumult to God. It's happening exactly as He decreed for it to happen. And so God, even though the nations rage from our perspective, God sits serene in the heavens, immovable, unshaken. He's not nervous. He doesn't wonder. He doesn't react. He doesn't plan. He simply is. He is God. And here are these singers that have now been gathered together with this God. Who are they? Well, they're the people of God, the saints. As I mentioned this morning, we've now been taken quickly into the state of glory And here we're reminded that the saints of God are going to be gathered into the presence of God and they will be, we will be with Him where He is. Now how are the saints described? That's where they are. Now how are they described? They're they're referred to as those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. We remember that language from chapter 13. They've overcome the temptations of the evil world system. They have... They have avoided its its method of worship. They've not been marked as belonging to the world. They are marked as belonging to God with His Spirit sealing them. That's who these are. And throughout chapters 2 and 3, we saw that those who conquer, or the overcomers, are the victors. It's those who have been faithful unto death. Those who endure to the end and are thus saved, like our Lord said. So these are the saints of God who had remained faithful unto death. And it says they have harps of God in their hands, which we've seen before are instruments specifically used in jubilant praise to God. So these are the worshipers of God in the presence of God. In the presence of God, no other action is befitting except worship, except praise. So these are those who fought the good fight. They've finished their course. They kept the faith. They've obtained the unfading crown of life. They held fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ against all opposition. They have finally obtained that inheritance that was kept for them. They've been made like Him because they here see Him as He is. These no longer look forward with faith and hope. Now they look back with absolute certainty. They no longer wonder what God will do, but they worship God for what He has done. They no longer ask what's going to happen because it's all been done. They no longer pray, how long, O Lord? Now they say, is that all? Was that it? The eternal weight of glory has drowned out all concern of light momentary afflictions. Every affection of theirs has been swallowed up in God. Their eyes are full of God. Their minds are full of God. Their hearts are full of God. And what do they do? They just sing. They're praising God. So that's their identity. These are the glorified saints. We, before we go into the scene of judgment, we're taken forward in time so that we can see this is what's coming for you. And that's meant to comfort us. Now secondly, we notice the substance of their song. In verses 3 and 4, 
And as we consider this song, we need to keep in mind that if we are Christians, this is our song. The Spirit has recorded this for us. And He's saying, in essence, you're going to sing this. This is going to be your praise. It might be difficult now to see how you could say some of these things, but trust me, you're going to sing it. You're going to say it. The Spirit says, in essence, you're suffering now. Times are difficult now, but one day you're going to be able to sing to God and praise His name for all that has happened. Every single detail of history, you will worship Him. Now this is something that we take by faith because we struggle to see how it all fits together. When this time comes, we're going to see it. Sure, we can look back and see God's faithfulness. And we can see His blessings now. We know that God is good and will do good. But very often, even if we don't come out and say it, our grumbling hearts accuse God of malfeasance as He handles the affairs of men. God, don't you know that our country would have fared better under a conservative administration? God, don't you know what we could accomplish if you would help us raise up more preachers? God, don't you know how effective we could be if you just save all of our children before they're 10 years old so that they could be on the mission field by the time they're 16? God, don't you know how, we, how much we could do if we weren't so financially limited? God, don't you know how many people we could reach if our church were bigger? These things that just sort of, in the back of our minds, we wonder, we question, we doubt, we expect more or even pretend that maybe... We could do a better job. If I was in control, this is how I would do it. This is how I would move the pieces. But one of these days when history comes to an end, all of that thinking is going to be gone. It'll be done. We're going to be given insight into the inner workings of God throughout history. And we'll be able to see how He has dealt with His church and how He has dealt with the wicked. And all we'll be able to do is praise Him and sing of His excellent greatness for every detail of history. We're not going to question. We're not going to make exceptions. Well, everything was good except for that one thing back there. There are not going to be any doubts of our minds. It's all going to be clear. And all we're going to be able to do is worship and praise Him. And that's what we see in this song. They're worshiping. We see it in its title, and then we see it in its lyrics. Notice the title. It says they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's its title. Now, while there are some connections, and, and we could, if we wanted to tie enough strings throughout the Scriptures, we could make a lot of connections, but if we took this song and laid it beside what we typically refer to as the song of Moses, we would find out that this is not a quotation of that song. We also have no recorded song lyrics by Christ, who is the Lamb of God, that's referenced here. So we can't say, well, this is just a quotation of a song Moses wrote, or a song that Christ wrote, or a song that Moses and the Lamb got together and penned that we have somewhere else. So what's the idea? Why would we call this the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb? Well, simply put, it's because this is the song of the redeemed people of God. Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and eventually led them to the mountain of God. As God brought them out of Egypt, remember He pours out judgments upon their enemies in the form of plagues. 
Christ, the Lamb of God, leads His people out of bondage to sin and death, and He brings us to God as well, to the mountain of God. He accomplished this work through His own death and resurrection. Contrary to what happened with Moses, the judgments of God were actually poured out upon His own Son so that He could lead us into the presence of God. And someday, as we heard the other, the other morning, the other side of that same justice of God will be poured out upon the wicked. Both of these leaders, Moses and Christ, they represent deliverance and redemption as God brings His people out of the house of slavery, out of the house of affliction. It's the song of the redeemed, the song of the delivered ones. Moses led in song at the bank of the Red Sea as God, as the bodies of Pharaoh's army prove God has delivered His people. And someday we're going to sing when we can see, no longer in faith, but with full sight, that God has brought us through the present evil age. He will manifest His power over our enemies. We will be gathered into His presence and we will sing the song of the redeemed, the song of the delivered ones. And again, this is our song. We sing it now in faith. We'll sing it in full sight someday. Now as we... Consider the lyrics. The first thing we notice is that this entire song is about God. The, if you look back at the song of Moses, he, he spends some time explaining the whole exodus from Egypt and what the, what the Egyptians had done and what God had done and what they had seen. He sort of walks through the narrative. We don't have any of that here. This is all God. It extols God's works, God's ways, God's nature. And as we walk through these lyrics... I want to adjust our angle a little bit as we consider them. We know who's singing. This is the redeemed. We know where they are. We know it's a picture of future glory. We've got all that clear. Now as we walk through them, I don't really want to continue the exposition by simply saying, and here's what we'll sing, and here's what we'll sing, and here's what it says we'll sing from that angle. I just want us to read this song as if we were actually just listening to someone tell us about our God. If I, if I had to phrase it a certain way, I don't want to preach about this song, I want to preach the song. I don't want to, uh, to just tell you about God somewhere, I want to try to preach God. I want us to read this song that way. This is telling us about our God. We begin first by noting the deeds of God. Great and amazing are your deeds. The deeds of God are God's works, God's actions, the things that He's done, all of the activities that He's undertaken and performed, all of the manifold acts which He who never slumbers nor sleeps has carried out from the beginning of time all the way through to the end of time. All of that would fall under deeds. In Ephesians 1.11, he's referred to as the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In some way, all things come under or come beneath the scope of His deeds. Small things, like the flooding of a creek in the foothills of North Carolina. Or big things like a global flood which destroys every living creature except eight souls. Insignificant events like the death of a single sparrow or 
big historic events like the crumbling of nations, things from the very beginning of time, things at the very end of history, all of these things come under the purview of what we would call God's works, God's deeds, the things that God has done. These are works involving individuals and works involving nations. These will be works involving galaxies that no man ever saw. Works involving God's work in the heart of a child as He brings them to repentance and faith. Works natural and supernatural. Works of God that were direct and immediate. That God acted as the first cause And then works that come along by second causes and chains of events and reactions that if we trace all of them back, we would just have to find God. Works which involve the bold acts of righteous men and works where God took the evil of men and turned it to His praise. Everything. His deeds. Great and amazing are your deeds. Great are the deeds of God. This is the word from which we get our term mega. Superlative. Outstanding in size, intensity, degree, or rank. In other words, the deeds of God stand behind, beneath, above, and around all other works. No one has performed works remotely close to the magnitude of God's works. The deeds of God in themselves are great and majestic. The manner in which God performs His deeds are great and majestic. The relation that God's works bear to all other works of every other creature or even to His own works. In every way imaginable, the works of the deeds of God outrank all other works. His deeds are great and amazing. Great and amazing are your deeds, are the deeds of God, the works of God. This might could also be translated marvelous. Something is marvelous, it produces a sense of marvel or wonder in anybody who considers it. If it's amazing, it causes the one observing to be amazed. The works of God cause men and angels to stand in amazement. The works of God produce astonishment. They engender admiration. The mighty acts of God confound all who hear of them. If we go into Jericho, Rahab's going to say, oh, we heard what your God did to the Egyptians. We go into the camp of the Philistines, we would hear them saying, oh, this is the God of the Israelites. You heard what they did, what He did to the Egyptians. They just confound the ears of all who hear of them. And this includes His acts of judgment, which are especially in view in our text. Individual acts of judgment, like when God banishes Cain or when God has the Israelites to stone Achan. Global acts of judgment, like the flood. Acts of judgment upon factions against God's people, like Korah's rebellion or the murmuring of a Miriam. All of these acts of judgment. God, if we, we look through the Scriptures, we see that God uses other people. He opens the earth. He sends fiery serpents, plagues, brings in foreign nations. He'll use family members. He'll use intestinal ailments. All sorts of things. All creation is at His disposal as He renders judgments upon wicked men. And when we consider the acts of God's judgment, it's like we read in the Scriptures, it ought to be this way. The two ears of everyone who hears of them will tingle. We we ought to shudder at the thought of God's acts of judgment. 
The language here <clears throat> is borrowed from the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 28.59, which says, The Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting. The Greek translation says, Calamities great and surprising, or calamities great and amazing, great and marvelous. It's dealing specifically with God's judgments. Now, all of God's deeds are great and amazing. We're going to look back and we're going to see the judgments of God and we're going to worship. Psalm 111, verses 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work and His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 139, 14. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Here's the difference between a Christian and a lost person. A Christian knows this. A Christian says, my soul knows it. It's not something somebody told me. My soul knows it. Now we can read and we, we, we learn. But I wonder if that thought has ever entered your mind as you, on your own cognizance, consider the works of God as your soul said, this is wonderful. This is great. This is amazing. This is astonishing. Then God is addressed as, O Lord God, the Almighty. God is the Almighty, the All-Powerful One. There can only be one Almighty, and God is that Almighty. As we behold the deeds of God and especially His judgments upon the wicked and His salvation of the righteous, there ought to be swelling within us. We ought to feel it swelling within us. This, this recognition that begins to ascribe to God all power in heaven and on earth and under the earth as we see that nothing is outside of His control. Nothing is beyond His reach. No task is undoable. His works are unstoppable. He's almighty. He owns all power, all might. Now that title, the Almighty, is often translated in the Old Testament, Lord of Hosts. This exact title, Lord God the Almighty, is used twice by the prophet Amos. One of them, I'll read Amos 14, For behold, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind, and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is His name. He does all of these things. God is the Almighty One, the God of hosts, the all-powerful, wonder-working God who astonishes and confounds the hearts of men and angels with all of His mighty deeds. So following the judgment... As we enter into glory, we're not going to say, is that all? We're not going to be wishing for a swifter or more violent judgment upon the wicked. We're not going to feel that perhaps our cause had not really been vindicated like it should have. No, we'll sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. You have performed it. You have done it. The deeds of God. Then we note the ways of God. Just and true are your ways. The ways of God are His pathways. The roads upon which He travels. The manner and methods by which God performs His work. The typical processes 
by which God carries out His will. This is the ways of God. God is to be praised not merely for what He's done, but for how He's done it. His ways. And His orchestration and disposition of the affairs of history. And in particular, in the way that He punishes the wicked and brings history to a close. This is His ways. The ways of God are just. Perfectly righteous. According to perfect justice and uprightness. In all the ways of God, there's no room for a charge of injustice or unfairness. This alludes to absolute moral parallelism to God's own character in all of His judgments. The Scripture calls for us to be people who are above reproach. That in, in, a, in general, people ought not to be able to bring approach, a reproach upon us and it stick. But there is a sense in which if people completely disagree with us and they hate our worldview, those people could actually bring a reproach. It wouldn't stick in God's court, but they could bring that. On this day, no reproach will be brought. His ways are just. Even those who've hated Him will say, just and true are your ways. The ways of God are true, sincere, Genuine. There's no disparity between what God does and who God is. There's never any conflict between what God does outwardly and who God is in Himself. God never has to force His hand to act or restrain Himself as if there were some imbalance in His will. All of the ways, the methods, the paths of God are perfectly just and upright, all perfectly sincere and genuine. None of the ways of God will ever be referred to as unfair. Nothing God has ever done has been out of character. We won't look at God or we can't look at any act of God and say, well, well, that was sort of unlike Him. We'll not look at God's judgments in the end and say, that was harsh. Nor will we say, they got off easy. We will say, just and true are your ways. At the end of Moses' life, he could say in Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He knows he's not going to go into the promised land. He he doesn't say, well, this is not really fair. I've spent all this time leading these people, and you're not even going to let me go in. No, he says, his work is perfect. He's done right. Just and true are the ways of God. He's addressed again, O King of the nations. As King, God is the rightful authoritative ruler of all things. He owns the right of rulership. He rules all of the kingdoms of men. He is the ruler of all nations. There's no people group that is outside of the dominion of God. So this rhetorical question is asked, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? Put these two together. It seems they're taken from Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. There is none like You, O Lord. You are great, and Your name is great in might. Who would not fear You, O King of the nations? 
For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all of their kingdoms, there is none like you. What is his due? Fear. Fear. Something that happens in me in light of him. Fear. Who would not fear this God? Who would not reverence this God? Who in their right mind, having any notion of this great God, would not begin to tremble in their belly at the thought of this one? Who would not swell with inescapable wonder at the conception of such a God? Who would not glorify His name? Who's not going to ascribe Him glory? Who in His presence would dare keep any glory for themselves? Who in their right mind does not at the very first thought and consideration of God's name, feel within them the moving of their whole soul into a posture of awesome reverence and honor and begin within themselves, even if almost subconsciously, to ascribe splendor and glory and honor and adoration to Him. Who doesn't do that? Those blinded by sin or those whose souls are still stifled by remaining corruption and unbelief. And there will become a day when all of that is taken away and we'll be able to say, who will not fear and glorify your name? Now the last three statements should all begin with the English word for. Even if you don't have the middle one, the ESV doesn't have the middle one, it should be there. So it would read like this, for you alone are holy. For all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And the structure of those, it seems, is, is something like this. Because, so that, because. In other words, because you alone are holy, so that all nations will come and worship you, because your righteous acts have been revealed. It says, for you alone are holy. God alone is holy, separate. He is cut apart from. Apart from what? Apart from everything not God. God is holy. God is unlike any other. God is unlike any creature in heaven or on earth. God, get this, God alone is holy. He's solitary in His holiness. His holiness is holy. We're referred to as a holy nation, and the angels are called holy ones, but even in, in, as creatures with our derivative holiness, we're unlike God. God's holiness is a holiness that alone is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Now, we've all heard people say that, that men fear what they do not know. Well, who would not fear and glorify this one who is absolutely other than, alone in His holiness, solitary in His holiness? We do not fear. We do not tremble because in the back of our minds there's something that still believes that He's kind of like us. But He's not. He's holy. And He alone is holy. As the Scriptures say, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God does not think like you. God does not act like you. God does not see things the way you see them. God does not approach things the way you approach them. Period. He's holy. 
How could He do things the way we do them? He's holy. He alone is holy. He's holy so that, or that produces this effect, all nations will come and worship Him. Now it is true that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, believer and unbeliever alike. Every tongue will confess it. But it's also true, and I think the point here, is that there will be some from all nations who will come and worship God freely as His redeemed ones. He is worthy of the worship of the nations. He alone has saved these ones from the nations. He alone is the one who's going to bring their salvation to completion. He alone has garnered the praise and the esteem of the nations so that men will flow to God from the nations. And they are down to this very day. Jeremiah 16, 19 says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth. That's Jeremiah. Isaiah 2.2 It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. They're coming to God. People from the nations will come to God. Who else would they go to? He alone is holy. Now a lot of this language is taken from Psalm 86, verses 8 to 10. It says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. He alone is God. And then notice how the song ends. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now that leads us back into the context of this chapter and the next and the ones that follow. The judgment is about to come. The saints are going to be, be seeing things poured out upon the wicked. He says when all of this is done, you're going to worship God because He's revealed His righteous acts. The end has come. The judgment of the wicked and the glorification of the saints has come. History has come to a close. And what's the end of the matter? The righteous acts of God have been revealed. Period. That's what we're going to say. We'll look at all of history. We'll sum it up by this. God's righteous acts we have seen. They've been revealed. They've been made manifest to us. All men and angels and creatures will behold the works of God He's made a full display of His works and His ways. Psalm 98 verses 1 to 3 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. Now, the Bible is a book about God, right? So when we say, when we read, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, that's not new because of something we did. It's not new because we got newer. It's new because of something God did. When we're singing to the Lord a new song, we're singing to God a song with regard to a new work of His. He's done something, so let's sing about it. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous thing. 
things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's what we'll say. Everybody's seen it. God's righteous deeds have been revealed. His righteous acts. This is the song of the redeemed. And if you are to have any hope of singing this song in glory, then you will have some familiarity with its subject matter now. If there is true saving faith, that faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the substance of that future hope, hope already residing in the soul. Which means that as we read these types of things that we're going to sing in the future, if you're a believer, your soul can already affirm and agree from experience that these things are so. Now you might not use these exact words, but again, can you even relate to any of these sentiments that are, that are, that are listed here? Uh, is any, has any of this ever been conceived or birthed in you, originating in your soul? I considered something God did, and that welled up within me something to the effect of, great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways. Who would not fear? Who would not glorify your name? Many people talk about God. In a general way, the man upstairs or the good Lord. But there's no personal recognition of the specifics of this God. Our command and our call is not to worship just some God, not to believe in just some God, not to defend the existence of just some God, but this God. Many men believe in a God, but they do not know this God, because it's never come down to specifics. It's never come down to the experience of their soul with regard to this God. Now, if my wife asked me, do you like me? Like, not, I, know you, I know you love me because we're married and you've made a commitment, but do you like me? If I responded by saying, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a guy. I like girls. I like women. That would be, not only that would not answer the question, but that would be borderline offensive. Because as a man, a married Christian man, I'm not called to like women. I'm called to love a woman, to be interested in, a, in one particular woman. You see, it's the particulars of my wife that make my relationship with her real. It's, it's similar with God. A lot of men have, I would say all men, have some noticeable cognition of God or a God. And a lot of people say good things about some God that they believe in. They use the word G-O-D or may even talk about Jesus. But very few ever have any meditations or move into the particulars of the real revealed God of Scripture. And it's the particulars that make God, the true God, personal and therefore real in the soul of a man. It's not just God. 
It's this God. And do I know this God? And can I reverberate these praises for this God in my soul? Or is all of the talk about God just something that I, I sort of come into and, and, and participate in and then I leave and go about my way? One of those is Christianity. One of those is not. That's the question. Do you know this God? Have you ever studied the works of God and immediately been filled with wonder, love, and adoration for who He is? If you have, you know good and well it doesn't last very long. It doesn't come, you can't just put a quarter in your devotion machine in the morning and get it. But if you've had any of those experiences, those little moments are the, the stuff that eternity is made of. That's eternity breaking into the here and now and reminding you this God is real. And we will sing this song. And those who have this hope already have the substance of it within them through faith. Let's pray. We'll stand and sing a song together. Father, we...